The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Mark chapter number 12. I want to read the, the text for you because it is a parable and um, the sermon may not really, uh, exp- you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth to explain the parable except to point out the highlights, but it would be important that we kind of set it in our minds uh, as Jesus continues his ministry in the temple, which is a ministry of mercy and condemnation, and we need to keep that tension in mind. He enters the temple. He uh, cleanses it. He confronts the unbelief of the temple uh, and the religious leaders. And much of his ministry in the temple is both a proclamation of mercy as well as a judgment against the religious practices of Israel at the time. He is speaking to the same people that he uh, was speaking to in, uh, in chapter number 11 at the end, namely the priests, the scribes, and the elders who asked him about his authority. Beginning with verse 1, chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent, uh, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now sanctify us in thy truth, O Lord, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be talking today about the anatomy of unbelief. The anatomy of unbelief. The big picture issue uh, within the text is that despite God's message of mercy and judgment that has been spoken through Jesus Christ, Israel has remained in unbelief. 
Perhaps uh, you, like I have heard it said uh, by someone, well, you know, if I could just see Jesus, then I, then I would believe. If I could just see him, uh, I'd believe. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've been witnessing to somebody. So I, I can't dig this faith thing too much. Do you know if I could see him and see him do some tricks, then yeah, I'd, I'd probably believe him. Well, let me remind you that for three years, the people of God were given the unique privilege of seeing Jesus. They observed his words, they uh, observed his actions, looked at his personal life, but at the end of those three years, guess what? They did not believe him. And why is that? Why did they not believe? And why in this room perhaps there are those who have been around the church for a significant period of time and you still have not believed in Jesus Christ in a saving way? You have some religious practices, you think yourself a good person, maybe do some morality, uh, but you do not have saving faith. You've never repented of, G of your sins and believed in Jesus. Well, there are reasons for that, and I hope to make those reasons clear. And as I do, of course, I am praying that the Spirit would use the words of Scripture, those we have already read, the songs that we have sung, the leadership that has been given, along with the sermon, to move you then from unbelief and into true belief in Jesus Christ, a life of true faith and a life of obedience. One of the ways that Mark has presented Jesus in his gospel is through the lens of authority. Jesus, um, of course, was authoritative. And Mark has shown us this as Jesus exercised authority over disease and over the natural world and even over death. And while the actions of Jesus were certainly impressive, we should also note that the words of Jesus were authoritative as well. It was through his words that he spoke of divine mercy and divine judgment. And at the outset of this message, I need to remind us, because I'm not sure we often keep this in our minds fresh, that his words are still authoritative. I was encouraged with this truth again in a book study I'm doing with a couple of pastors I'm going to read a long quote, and I find when I read long quotes, you get lost in them, so we're going to put it up on the screen. This is by the uh, uh, Oxford theology, the, uh, let's say theology professor, uh, John Webster, who said, when we listen to the Bible, we are placed in the presence of Jesus Christ. As we hear scripture read, we are in the presence of one who speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. These ancient texts are not curious little windows on an antique religious culture into which we peer from afar. They are the speech of Christ to us. He is the living Christ present among us in the Spirit's power as we assemble in this place. And if that says palace, that's because uh, there was uh, the, the, the word correcting didn't work very well. As we assemble in this place is the one who speaks. He is not distant. He is not mute. He comes to us and addresses us through this creaturely servant 
The ancient text of Scripture through which he speaks as living word of judgment, forgiveness, and consolation that is new every morning. We listen to Scripture as the living voice of the living Christ. That's why we have been encouraging you to bring your Bibles to church, to have your Bibles open, to look at the Word of God. I was speaking about this to a woman yesterday morning at CrossFit. She was asking about church and what I do and what we talk about. I said, well, one of the things is we tell people to bring your Bibles because when you have your Bibles open, you know where things are. You get familiar with the pages and the text. It is so vitally important to be in touch with the Word of God, physically holding it in your hands, having it open to the text. And as this sermon unfolds, then what we're going to have to wrestle with is really clear. Will we respond to the authoritative words of Jesus with hard hearts, full of unbelief, as these religious leaders did? Or will we, by God's grace, humble our hearts before the mighty voice of God in Christ and by faith follow him? The anatomy of unbelief is embedded within the parable that Jesus told. But to see it, we need to do a little bit of work on the historical context of the parable. Uh, as some of you know, most of you know, I'm sure by now, our son, Zach, and his family, Katie, and, and the children who were uh, living uh, in Montreal have moved back to the area. And uh, what this means is you're going to get some grandkids stories. That, you know, they're close by, I get to hang out with them, Snow and Isle, you get to get some stories. A week or so ago, I had them, and we were out at Hovey Park and walking around Hovey Pond, and uh, Noah's a little ahead, and I got out Evelyn's hand, and we're walking, and we're walking, and suddenly, she burst out, I'm alive! And I thought, oh, great, now she's got the resurrection theology uh, firmly bedded in her mind, she must be thinking about Easter as she lives in Easter life, how wonderful it is. And I said, Evie, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know, the ants go marching five by five, and one of them says, I'm alive. And I'm like, oh, she was singing that song in her head about those ants. And she got to the number five, and she's alive. And I thought she was, you know, bursting out with uh, resurrection theology. You see, the context matters, doesn't it? Right? Kind of understanding what is being said and why is it being said? Storytelling needs a context. So I want to help you with the context of the parable and why in the end the religious leaders had such a response to it. The parable actually is a kind of a reader's digest version of the sad story of Israel from about the end of Solomon's reign up until the time when Jesus steps on the scene and then about 40 years later when in 70 AD the temple is destroyed and the city is ransacked and the Jews are scattered. And, and as we know, God uh, in the history of Israel sent prophets to proclaim his mercy and make an appeal for the people to repent of their sins. And along with the proclamation of mercy, a faithful prophet would tell God's people of the coming judgment if the people did not repent. You know, if you pick up your Bible and you read uh, the end of 2 Samuel and First uh, and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles, and then you fast forward over to Isaiah and you read to the end of the Old Testament, and you put those stories together, what you see is this series of 
of unfaithful priests, unfaithful kings, and unfaithful prophets, but God constantly sending in a message of mercy through the voice of a faithful prophet to proclaim his word. And what did the uh, kings and priests, the leaders of the people do when they heard from the faithful voice of God, they put the prophet to death because they did not want to hear from God. This is what the parable is telling us. This is what the parable is recounting for us. We're going to put it up on the screen. There's just these little markers that we're going to point to to give you an idea of the structure of how it works. The vineyard that God planted is Israel, his chosen people. The owner of the vineyard, of course, is God. The servants uh, that serve are the faithful kings and priests and prophets. And then the persecutors are the unfaithful leaders of Israel that includes kings and priests and in some cases prophets. The others that are mentioned in the parable, the, the ones who get the, uh, the vineyard at the end, uh, are the nations, the nations. And then the, the sun and the stone that is mentioned, of course, is Jesus, who is the faithful and final prophet, priest, and king of God who was sent then into the world to redeem. That's kind of the structure of how the parable works. Historically, moving it forward then, we need to see in its present context, as Jesus tells it, that the religious leaders of the community understand, they perceive, that the parable was about them. That's in verse 12. They're seeking to arrest Jesus but fear the people because they perceive that he had told the parable against them. This is where the anatomy of unbelief begins. What Jesus spoke about was no isolated incident. It was, in fact, the historical trajectory of Israel. That's one of the reasons I had them read today the long story of Korah's rebellion. And then after the ascension of Christ and the apostles go out, the persecution continues. Israel's historical trajectory was to not listen to God, and when they heard things they didn't like, to rise up in rebellion, to either kill or to threaten to kill, to put people to death who were speaking the word of God uh, to them. Both of those stories that we read, as well as the one in front of us, will help us see then what is behind the strident unbelief of so many people in our day, and certainly in the day of Jesus. We should note that it was not a lack of religious fervor that caused the hardness. It was that they put their religious practices above the more important matter of the heart. You see... Religious practices are to be a window through which we see the work of the Holy Spirit and through which things in our lives are made, you know, real or evident. And then we apply the gospel to change those things. But there are people who use religious practices to only boast up themselves. And then when they hear something they don't like and it kind of exposes something within them, oh, I don't want to hear that. So out the door they go, or whatever it might be. They perceived that the parable was against them. They were right. They perceived it. They understood it, but it only right turned them further away 
It only hardened their hearts more. As we think about unbelief, we must remember that all of this is taking place within the temple. Jesus is not speaking to a group of pagans in some far-off place that do not believe in God. He is going head-to-head with people who have heart conditions exactly like the prophet Jeremiah described when he wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? And that's kind of an open-ended question, isn't it? Which the implication is, do you know the depth of your own heart? Have the religious practices that you've engaged in uh, caused that door to be opened so that your heart is soft and pliable and repentant towards God when the light shines in? Or do you stand back and say, well, I have religious practices, I must be good to go, but your heart is still hard towards God and you're deceived. You engage in all kinds of wicked practices. You know, I wonder how many doctors have been maligned because patients didn't like hearing the truth. They go home from a doctor's visit and they say to their friends or family, you know, that guy doesn't, that doctor doesn't know what, what they're talking about. They just like to hear themselves talk. They're a bunch of overpriced people. You know, I feel fine. They don't know what they're talking about. In a similar way, what is often said about the professional medical community is often said about the servant of God. He likes to hear himself talk. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know all the good things I do. How dare he stand up there and say stuff like that? But why didn't the religious leaders just arrest Jesus then and be done with it? And they, they had the political power. They, they had the temple guards. Why didn't they just say, hey, enough, enough, enough of you. Get this guy. Get him out of here. Well, Mark tells us, doesn't he? In verse 12, who did they fear? They feared the people. They feared the people. This is the second time in just two encounters right, that this issue comes up about fear. Back, back in the previous encounter, they, they wouldn't say that John was just a man because they feared the people. And here, they wouldn't lay hands on Jesus because they feared the people. In this case, fear becomes an obstacle to carrying out their intentions to arrest Jesus, but it also becomes an obstacle for them to believe in Jesus. This is part of the anatomy of unbelief because it was their fear of the people that actually outweighed their fear of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Not only for your life, but for the you know, communities that surround us. How many times that the voice of God may be speaking into somebody's life, but because of somebody over here, They care more about this person's opinion than they care about what God is saying. And that's a real problem, isn't it? Whatever your peer group may be, be, you still have peer pressure. Family. Friends. People at work. People at school. Relatives. Summer parties. 
and, and, and we drift a, a, away from fearing God and what God would say into fearing people. And it creates a, a, a blockage of faith and unbelief settles into our lives. This is exactly, I mean, imagine that they have just heard Jesus condemn them, but they weren't listening to the condemnation. They still wanted to get to Jesus, but they couldn't because they feared the people. These are the religious community of the Jews who thought they had all of this fear of God, but in reality, they just feared the people. It's interesting, isn't it, that instead of allowing the message to change their minds about Jesus, they began to work harder at changing the opinion of the people about Jesus. And that is a telltale sign of unbelief. And it happens in churches, too. Oh, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. we got to keep up appearances. We don't want to be a church that maybe sounds unloving in these cultural matters that we're facing in America today. And so, you know, we need to be careful what we say and careful how we present ourselves. We want to be liked after all. And there are those, even in the congregation of God's people, who will work to change the minds of people about what others think and care less about what God might think about any particular issue. In just a few days of telling this parable, Jesus then would join the ranks of prophets who were put to death because they had spoken the truth about sin and about the coming judgment. In the history of humanity, not only among the uh, nation of Israel, but humanity in general is filled with violence against the voice of righteousness. And sometimes it's persecution that leads to death. But in America, and especially in our own local communities, it is death by asphyxiation. People just put a pillow over the voice of God's divine mercy and over the voice of God's divine judgment and they suffocate it out. Or they just put a pillow over their ears and they say, I don't want to hear anything else about it. And they just walk away from truth. In his excellent book titled Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, New York Times columnist Ross Dohat writes, and get this, in 1930, in 1930, so what about, what was that about 90 years ago or thereabouts, doing the math quickly in my head, never a good thing, but 1930, less than half, less than half of Americans were formally affiliated with a church or denomination. That's in 1930. By 1960, that number had risen to almost 70%. In 1960, 7 out of 10 Americans were going to church somewhere, involved in some faith community. The explosion of church attendance in post-World War II America resulted not only in steady increases in attendances at seminaries and Sunday schools, but it also resulted in large projects in church construction. In 1945, Americans spent $26 million dollars on building churches. By 1960, it was over a billion dollars in church construction. 
the growth was so noticeable, and I quote, that a British journalist touring America wrote that the walls of new churches were rising in towns throughout the countryside wherever we went. Some of us in this room experienced this. I, I did in my childhood, and some of you remember the great growth and involvement in the church through their years, and we might be wondering, well, well what happened? <laughs> you know, what happened? When and how did we fall so quickly? And if the numbers are correct, that in 1960, 7 out of 10 people are attending church, how is it today that less than 2 out of 10 people are in church on any given Sunday in the United States of America? Now, it isn't the point of the sermon to do a thorough exam of what happened over the last 60 years, but I would like to say this, and I think it is very important, we shouldn't scapegoat things. We shouldn't scapegoat things. In other words, we shouldn't say, well, it was the sexual revolution of the late 1960s, or it was our nation's struggle with drugs and alcohol fueled by a post-Vietnam depression, or it was the materialism of the 80s, that's what did us in. Those are just convenient scapegoats for the decline. I think the answer to the unbelief in our nation that now exists is deeply embedded in exactly what Jesus told in this parable. The way that Jesus dissects the unbelief of the religious community of his day, we should assume that it is true of our day as well. And by the way, again, true of people who actually still go to church. Still go to church. People do not like to hear that they have a heart problem. They just don't want to hear it. We prefer to self-diagnose. And then we prefer to self-medicate when it becomes that our self-diagnosis was faulty. And that's a picture of America. And there has been this terrible idea that has been around for some time now in the church that if, you know, we would just make the message of Jesus a bit easier... If we would just do a better job of figuring out, you know, what people want and then cater to their needs, then they would finally like us. Then they'd finally like God. And then they finally will come to church. We need to think outside the box. That's what I was told recently by somebody. We need to think outside the box. Well, quite honestly, I believe it's that kind of thinking that got us into the trouble that we're in today. Because the problem with that kind of thinking is that it never takes Jeremiah into account. Have we not read that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? So what's the solution to unbelief? If we can identify a structure, can we not find a way forward that is filled then with hope? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, 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 there is hope. The promise of God, and quite honestly, the history of God's work in humanity is always one of saving action. God, from the very outset, is taking action to save. And what we need to do as God's people is put away all of these ideas that somehow Jesus was a victim of bad circumstances or that we are victims of changing circumstances you know beyond of our controls that that's not true it is god who is the one taking the action and we know this from what jesus says here 
in the text. Have you not read this scripture? I love the way that Jesus embeds this parable within the context of the scriptures. And then he tells them the scripture, which is Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Very often, as I have said, and I want to say it again, within the message of judgment, like the one that Jesus spoke, there is also a message of mercy. Jesus is speaking right there a message of mercy to the religious leaders, and he would speak us to us as well today. And we need to see it there in verse number 10. Get your Bibles open. Look at verse 10 of chapter number 12, because there is something about that verse that opens the door to hope. Now, I don't like puns. Maybe you like puns. Maybe you're good at making puns. When I make them, I feel bad because I never, you know, I don't mean to, and I think they're very good. I apologize. But there's a pun in this, which you can't see it because it's in the Hebrew and not in the English translation. Now, the word for stone, you see it there in verse number 10, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone, the word for stone in the Hebrew is ebed, E-B-E-D, think ebed, ebed. But the word son in the Hebrew is just one letter different, it's eben, eben. And, and, and this word eben, or son, carries a connotation of a stone as a family builder. No offense, ladies, but for a, a Jewish man, a son was of paramount importance because it would be upon his son that he would build his house. And so the house would be built upon the son who was viewed as, and the word means, stone of help. So this word, E-bed, stone, and E-ben, son, come together meaning that God is going to send a stone of help. He's going to send someone upon whom he is going to build his house. And that son that is going to be rejected is actually going to be the chief cornerstone. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about that for a moment. The chief cornerstone. Everybody looks at Jesus, right? Oh, he's a miracle worker. He's not. He's this, he's that. The religious leaders, we've got to get rid of him. And God says, it's upon him that I'm building my house. He's the chief cornerstone. The son rejected in the parable is also the stone that the builders rejected. So you have this double rejection. But through their rejection, God's mercy flows in through Jesus and because God is the owner of the vineyard and God is the one that is taking the action, the rejected son that is raised up and he becomes the chief cornerstone. He becomes the one the hope and promise is in that moves you and I from unbelief to belief. Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not read them? Have they not spoken authoritatively into your life? Do you remain in unbelief, afraid of what someone might think or someone might say? Or have your religious practices just 
hardened your heart against the true, actual reality of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ? If you have read the scriptures, if you have turned from your sins, if you were following faithfully after Jesus, you have no reason to despair. The church is not going to drift off into irrelevance. And you know, while it is true that in just a few short days from the time Jesus spoke these words to the time of his death, that the Jewish leaders turned the opinions of the people from shouting Hosanna to shouting crucify him. It was through that death through the crushing of that stone, through the rejection of that stone, that salvation came. The judgment that fell first on Jesus is the judgment that leads to salvation in Jesus. Which gives us hope to say that the judgment that is falling upon this nation needs to be understood in the context also of mercy. That we would be raised up like the apostles of old and say we have to obey God rather than men. Put us in prison, do away with us if you will, but God will still raise up a faithful witness. This is what our response should be to the strident unbelief of our day. Let us take our cue from Jesus who stood in the temple and pointed people to both the mercy of God and the judgment of God. And as he did, let us do it. And let us be bold in doing it. And let us do it with love. And let us do it with compassion. Because our, our little Evelyn was a right. We're alive. We're, we're alive. We're going down like the ants know. We're going up. Arise, my soul. Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The vineyard has been given to the church to tend until the day when the Lord of the vineyard returns to gather its fruit. So let us be faithful then to the work that he is doing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. Father, these are difficult times, sure. Difficult times in which we live, but oh, they are times of great opportunity great opportunity for as never before at least in a very long time is the separation from light and dark in our nation so significant there is no mistaking any longer the darkness as is there is no mistaking the true light let us oh god be people of light and let us walk in your light and in your life full of faith and obedience I'm going to give you a few moments to settle some things in your own heart before the Lord as we come to his table. May we come with faith believing in the good work that he is doing. Let's be quiet before the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.